tell me what to do. So today uh, we're looking at um, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 9-1. We're studying the Gospel of Mark together this year. Um, we're we're going to be um, taking some time next week uh, to ca- talk about vision, uh, but, and then we'll pick it up again after Advent, the Gospel of Mark. But this is a real turning point in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to read to us from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 9-1. It's in your bulletin. Um, if you brought a Bible, turn there, keep it open, and follow along. It'll be on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to give you the gift of one. We have them out in our foyer, and there's a bunch out there. Please, please take one. We'd love for you to have one. Let's read along. Mark writes this, And Jesus went on with the disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, this point in Mark serves as this uh, pivot place where up to this time, um, Jesus has been ministering primarily in, in the fishing village that he, he grew up around in, in Capernaum, and, and now he is setting his, his course on a journey to the capital city of Jerusalem. And so, uh, in previously, as we've been studying for these first eight chapters, it's been like Jesus and the disciples will go out and, and they'll do ministry, they'll do healing, there's resurrection, they've fed 5,000 and 4,000, and now, and then they would go back home and recoup and then keep going back out. They went to Gentile villages and they came back home, but now they're not returning home. They're setting their course uh, towards Jerusalem, slowly but surely. And as they head to this capital city, what we've established already in the first eight chapters of Mark is that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king who's ushering in the kingdom of God. But now he tells them so plainly, and hopefully they begin to get it, but I don't think they actually do, that this king, even though he is truly the king and the Messiah, this journey to the capital city will not be for his enthronement. We know this, but instead it will lead to his suffering and and to the cross. And so there's these three questions that are really asked, two specific and one more uh, intuitive. But the first one uh, that came up in this passage is this. Who do people say that I am? 
Jesus asked his disciples that. And the disciples answered him, they think you're John the Baptist. <laughs> now, I don't understand that one. Like, John the Baptist was a real man, and he was just there recently and had just died, and Jesus was also there. So I've never, I've never understood this, and I've never heard a great explanation how anyone could confuse Jesus as John the Baptist, but apparently some people were saying that. Others say Elijah. I do understand that one a little bit more because Elijah had been taken away in a fiery chariot in this very, you know, spiritual way. Uh, he didn't just die like the rest of us. He just like zoomed off into the sky and people don't know where he went and that kind of thing. So maybe he's back. I get that. Others think one of the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, and that's interesting. But what's interesting the most is this. People saw him as an extremely important man and uh, maybe a precursor to the Messiah, but not the Messiah. People saw him a person who's like coming before the one who would be the way, but not the way himself. And this is where many people in our own culture stand on Jesus, right? That he's a great teacher, he's a great moral authority, he's this good person, he was a great rabbi, and, and obviously sparked this amazing revolution of morality and goodness and loving your neighbor and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, you can't let Jesus stand there. C.S. Lewis famously pointed this out. Anyone that goes around saying things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father except through me. If you go around saying stuff like that, like, I am the door, I am the way, like, I am actually God, then what, if you're making claims like that, you're either mentally ill, or you're a liar and a narcissist, and there's only really one other option, or you're actually the person you say you are. So Jesus never lets people get by with this idea, I'm just a good teacher, I'm just a moral rabbi. No, he is saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I'm the way that you get right with God. And so he doesn't leave us this, this option, and he's really either um, someone who's mentally ill, a narcissist, or he is the Messiah. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And this really is the central question of humanity. If Jesus is who he says he was, if he's mentally ill or a narcissist, we can ignore him. But he did things that no one else has been able to do. He healed people in miraculous ways. He, he even raised people from the dead, the little girl. He, he has been healing He's been feeding people with a small amount of food. 5,000 people get fed, later 4,000 people. He's doing these unbelievable miracles, and ultimately the miracle of miracles is his own resurrection. And so if Jesus Christ is who he said he was and was able to back it up with his own resurrection, this question of, like, who do you say that I am really is the central question that you need to answer in your heart, maybe more than any other question that you'll ever answer in your lifetime. Peter answers correctly according to the Christian faith. You're the Christ. And for those of us who are Christian, this seems like the only logical choice. After all we've seen, all the healings, all the miracles, everything, it seems obvious. This is not a precursor to the Messiah. This is the Messiah. You think everyone would get it, but they didn't. Peter's confession was unique in this context. Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. Peter gets it. And Peter also does not get it, interestingly. 
He gets it and he doesn't get it. Peter gets that Jesus is the Messiah and he gets that right, but he doesn't get it and that he doesn't understand the true nature of the mission of the actual Messiah, who the real Messiah is. Peter has a preconceived idea of who the Messiah would be. He had created a Messiah in his own mind, as had all of Israel, really. Uh, the messianic expectation of that day was mainly the idea that the Messiah would be a warrior king like King David, and that he would expel the Romans uh, out from Israel, restoring Israel's independence and their greatness. Other people were expecting more of a priestly figure, like a high priest, like in the order of Aaron, and other people still were thinking a superhuman figure who would usher in a new age of peace and prosperity. But no one was expecting the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. A suffering servant. Who do you say that I am? Who do, I, who do you say that I am? And then ultimately the, the question that Jesus did not ask but is stating is who do I say that I am? Who, do I, who does Jesus say that Jesus is? Peter believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's created a Jesus in his own image, and this is one of the greatest temptations of our day. And I think in every generation, atheists will also often say, you know, your Messiah, your Jesus is just a figment of your imagination and someone you've created in your own image. And you know what? I'm actually going to grant that that is often the case. That the Jesus that we envision, the Jesus that we worship even at times, is not actually the Jesus of the Bible, but a Jesus of the figment of our imagination. The Jesus that we've created and that we create, really, he doesn't exist because it's a figment of our imagination. In the movie, a very, very deep and profound movie called Talladega Nights, um, <laughs> the main character, Ricky Bobby, famously prays to baby Jesus around the table, right? And as he's praying to little tiny infant Jesus, that leads to this deep theological discussion about the type of Jesus that they prefer to envision. And his fellow NASCAR driver, Cal Naughton, says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I like to party and I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. And I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with an angel band, right? <laughs> it's funny, and some of you are even offended. How can you even talk about Jesus like this in this church? Because we're not talking about the real Jesus. But this is exactly what we all do. It's funny, but it's not funny because at the end of the day, as a culture and as a society, as individuals, we do this. We create a Jesus and worship a Jesus that's kind of a false Jesus. We've created the Jesus of prosperity that exists for my pleasure. And not only does, is he here to meet my needs, he, he'll meet all of my desires if I just have enough faith, if I can just muster up enough faith, he'll give me everything that I want. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. And if, I pray that you see that today from our text. A Jesus who's a cosmic Santa Claus just doling out gifts and if, I, if I'm a good boy or a good girl, I'm gonna kind of get whatever I want. A Jesus who perfectly aligns with my political agenda, my desire for my nation. That's exactly what's going on in Israel that day. A Jesus um, like that is a creation in our own imagination and it's ultimately an idol. But there's the Jesus who is. 
the Son of God, the Son of Man, who was and is and is to come, who lived his life for us, died his death for us, rose from the dead for us. This is the man to whom we are called to adore as our Messiah, as the Christ, as the risen one. But let's make sure that we're worshiping the Messiah of the Bible. What Jesus had to do is the next thing I want us to see this morning. He shares with us what he had to do. After Peter's partially correct confession of faith, Mark tells us that Jesus began to share with them that he must suffer many things. Okay, that's, that's not what Messiah is supposed to do. No suffering for Messiah. We don't like that Messiah. The Greeks don't like it. The Romans certainly don't like it. And even the Jews don't like it. He shared with them that he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, that he would be killed, and then after three days rise again. And Mark tells us that Jesus has finally uh, made his messianic mission so clear that it causes Peter to rebuke Jesus. And the word for rebuke is the same word that Jesus used to rebuke a demon in chapter 1, verse 25. So why did Peter react this way? Jesus is threatening Peter's idol, his expectations, his dreams, his hope, and think about those expectations. And Jesus is responding with severity. He calls him what? Satan. (laughs) Jesus loves Peter. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. And and we know that we don't mean that he's establishing him as the pope there, but that he's saying like, on your faith, on on faith like that, Peter, I will establish uh, my church. And he loves Peter, but he also calls Peter Satan. And if Jesus calls you Satan, you should probably listen. Jesus is responding with severity, and, and let's think about that. Why? Why such severity to call your, your brother, your, your, one of your best friends, someone that you love and that you're going to die for, literally the devil? Why would you do that? And I believe it's because Jesus has been barraged with strong temptation to not head to Jerusalem to suffer under the hands of the chief priest and the elders and to die. He's tempted not to. And Satan himself has been peppering him with lies and telling him to not do this, to not go to the cross. And so Jesus rebukes Peter as Satan because Peter is parroting what the devil has been whispering in Jesus' ears probably for years. There's what Jesus had to do, and today I want to talk about why he had to do it. Jesus had to go and suffer and die, but why? Short answer, you and I are the reason he had to do it. But let's let this sink in and let's marinate on this for a minute. I want to try to answer the why behind this because I made it all the way into like my second or third year of seminary. And seminary is like grad school for pastors. It's where you go to study the Bible and theology and philosophy and history and all this stuff. And so when I was in seminary, I made it at least halfway through before this question really dawned on me. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? You know, I mean, have you thought about that? It's a brutal thing. Why would God require that his own son suffer and die on a cross? Wasn't there some other way? Why didn't he just say, you know what? It's good. I forgive you. I'll let you go. If God is loving, why couldn't he just show up, have Jesus show up as a man at 33 and say, I got to forgive you guys. I just do. I just forgive you. The author in 
professor, Ben Witherington, who was a professor at my seminary, wrote this. What sort of God would require that his son sacrifice himself on a cross? What needs to be said is that Mark believed that Jesus came to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for the many. This indeed was the only way God could be both righteous. Here, listen, this is the answer right here. It is the way that God could be both righteous and the writer of fallen humanity, both just and the justifier of sinful people. It was the only way God could express his love without becoming an unrighteous God or conversely express his holiness without being an unloving God. God had a dilemma. And of course God doesn't actually have dilemmas. We, we know that. That's a, from our perspective, he has a dilemma. On the one hand, God is holy. He's completely righteous. He's morally perfect. And on the other hand, thanks be to God, he's love. He is perfectly righteous. He's holy, and he's also perfectly loving. And while we were created good and in God's image, we fell into rebellion and sin. We know this from Genesis chapter 3. And we've all thumbed our nose at God and his will for our life. In essence, we've been saying our whole lives, I will do what I do want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it. I will be the determiner of my life. I want to create what is true for me. I will establish what is right and good and just for me. Who are you to be Lord over my life? I will find my own way. So he could have just said, I forgive you for this rebellion, but that would have denied the reality that God is just and righteous and holy. It, it would. I hope you see that. On the other hand, he could have said, just as equally, he could have said, I don't forgive you. Instead, I'm going to do like what I did in the flood, and I'm going to destroy the world, and every single one of you is going to receive my judgment. You don't deserve my mercy and kindness and grace. You do deserve my righteous anger, so I will just destroy you and separate you for the rest of eternity. Uh, we'll be separated. And that would have been true to his justice, but would have violated his love and his mercy. So God is holy, but not to the exclusion of his love, and God is loving, but not to the exclusion of his holiness. And in the cross, in the cross, God shows us perfectly and beautifully and poetically and symbolically and in reality, historically, that his love and his justice were satisfied. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and we deserve his wrath, his justice, and his punishment. But on the cross, he gives us his love as well. Now, let's pause here for a second. And let's just admit how strange this is for us as modern people to talk about a God who would require punishment and mete out justice. That seems so strange to us to think of a deity who has anger and wrath and like he's got the whole universe to, to worry about. And if you haven't noticed, the Hubble telescope and a lot of other things have been teaching us, the universe is really big. I mean, it's really, 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 really big and there's a lot of stuff out there. How could he care about what's happening to us on planet Earth as just a small part of his universe? We may not like to think of God that way, but the truth is we certainly act that way, do we not? That if somebody has harmed us, wronged us, rebelled against us, hurt us, really hurt us, there's a cost. 
When somebody offends us, robs us, takes from us, everything in us calls out for justice. I had this great morning yesterday. I, I taught Intro to New Valley for four hours and hung out with these great people who are new to the church and checking out the church, and we hung out all day, and I was just in a great mood. And I'm heading home yesterday <laughs> on Elliott, and traffic is like being boiled down to like one lane. And I, being dutifully, a dutiful, righteous person, got over into the right lane and to get in the line, to get in the queue, realizing that we have to get over. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's like 15 cars that are utterly ignoring the fact, and they've been told for a long time, get over, get over, get over. They're not getting over, and they're going to the front of the line, and that's what I want to do, right? I want to go to the front of the line, but I'm being a good boy, and, and they're getting over, and, and they're not getting over until the very end, and so I'm getting really angry. And there's stuff going on in my heart that I don't even want to admit to you, like about traffic, okay? Because there's a sense of justice. There's right and wrong. Good people get over. Bad people wait to the very end so they can skip in front of everyone. They're violating the righteous code of the world on, on Elliot, right there. You, am I alone? Does anyone else get crazy like this? <laughs> Praise God. All right, we're together. All right, some of you are normal and not weirdos, but like some of us are righteous justice people. And that's funny, but that's real. It's justice. It's wrong. You're doing something wrong. I want to stop you. If I was a cop, I'd pull you. Oh, I'd love to just give you a ticket right now. <laughs> now, here's the thing, though. If that's true of me, how much more is it true of God? I'm not holy and just and altogether righteous. I can't tell you how many times I've also cut to the front of the line because I've got good reason to. I'm, I've got need to do this. How did you feel on the evening of 9-11. Think about that. Sadness, of course. Profound sadness. Shock, awe, and a sense of duty. This must be paid for. Somebody must pay for this. Some of you probably joined the military that day. Others respond like, I, I would do anything to stop this injustice. Something has to be done. And when we see things like child abuse, 9-11, the Holocaust, that's how we react. But we also feel that way whenever we're just wrong personally. And if we, not innocent, demand justice when we're wrong, why is it so outdated or wrong or unmodern to conceive of a God that would also long for justice when he himself is perfectly righteous and holy? And he is. I'm not righteous, and I long for justice. He is righteous. He longs for justice. Either he could pay or demand that we pay for what had to be paid, but in Jesus, what we see, and this is so beautiful, and it's a demonstration of his grace, we deserved his righteous indignation, but instead, what did we get? His grace. And that's why the cross took place, though. On the cross, what you're seeing is what you and I deserve. His anger towards sin, not just one person's, but literally an entire humanity of sin against him, the response was for him to send his own son to the cross. In Galatians 3, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, 
cursing is everyone who hanged on a tree. And instead of a stumbling block, I'm pleading with you to let this speak to your heart. While God is just and his wrath against wrongdoing uh, was meted out on the cross against his son, I want you to look at where it fell. On the one person of whom deserved, he's the only person on, on planet earth that did not deserve to be there, and yet he was there. The holy son of God, the perfect son of God, God himself laid the sin of the world on himself. We're Trinitarians, so we believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three person, but God the Father is meeting out our sin on his own Son, who is also fully God. And so God does not pour his wrath on us, instead he pours it on his Son. And, and not only that, in return, Jesus gets what I deserve and you deserve and what the entire world deserves but the gospel doesn't stop there. In return, you and I get what Jesus deserves. And so, while you struggle with this idea, theologians call this propitiation, which means that God removes his wrath from us by providing a substitute, and Jesus in himself is that substitute. He steps in, he absorbs the wrath. God's wrath isn't averted. Instead, it goes on himself, and let that speak to your heart. The cross is a strange thing. If you think about it, it's a symbol of execution and we wear it around our necks and we put it on our wall. And in spite of the fact that's an, an odd thing for people to do, it's a, it's a means of execution. We do it because there in that moment in real history and time, the God of the universe laid his own son in our place that we may never have to face that judgment. If that doesn't change your hearts, then again, listen to the fact that Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, even though his anger fell on Jesus, his perfect record of righteousness falls on us. And lastly, how should we respond in light of this? Jesus shares beautifully with us how we should respond. We should respond by believing Jesus' seemingly paradoxical words in this, in this passage. Real life is not found in finding yourself, it's found in losing yourself. Where real life is found, real pleasure, true freedom is, is, it's counterintuitive. It's not found in actualizing yourself, it's found in losing yourself and dying to self and serving others instead of being served. Jesus says this, he tells the, uh, the crowd to gather together and he gathers the disciples too and he says, deny yourself. Take up your cross Whoever saves his own life loses it. If you're all about, I have to be first, I mustn't be number one, I must protect myself, Jesus says you lose in this universe. You're, I was not created to live my life that way. Die to self. What good is it, Jesus says, to be the richest, most powerful man in the whole world but to lose your eternal soul? If you're ashamed of me and my plan and my kingdom, I'll be ashamed of you when I return with power. How should we respond? Normally when we hear this metaphor of take up your cross, because Jesus isn't saying, hey, we all have to die on the cross. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if I am, God, I am the son of God and I'm denying myself and my followers must also deny themselves and die to themselves, 
not that you have to literally die, but metaphorically, what does this mean? And we, we tend to say things like, well, my marriage is my cross to bear, if, if you're in a difficult marriage. Or my job is my cross to bear. I hate my job. It's my cross. This illness, a difficult relative, difficult person, but that's not what it means. It's not like just some tough circumstance in your life. Ah, oh, that's my cross. One author writes this, cross-bearing as a follower of Jesus means nothing less than giving one's whole life over to following Jesus. And here comes another surprise. This is the only way to total freedom. If you clutch your life wholly to yourself, protecting against all others, asserting all your rights, needs, and privileges, you lose it because it isn't life any longer. If, however, you acknowledge that life is not yours by rights, that it's all privilege, it's grace, and it's to be lived in the love that the gospel story reveals, self-giving love, then you possess it wholly. There now is nothing to lose and everything to gain. Amen? Last night, uh, as I fell asleep, I don't know why I did this, but I felt like God was just calling me to recount 10 things just to be thankful for. It's like, I have trouble falling asleep. My mind starts thinking of a million things. So I just start, I'm just, instead of thinking about what I would be prone to worry about, I'm going to think of everything I should be thankful for. And just, I had so much to be thankful for, you know? You are among the reasons I'm thankful, my, this church. And as I listed off the things that I was thankful for, I just fell into sleep, not even finishing the list, just because I was just so glad, because God is so good. He's so good to me. That beautiful, simple song that we sung already. Let that ring in your hearts all this week. God is so good. He's so good to you. Our culture finds freedom through finding yourself, through actualizing yourself, through empowering yourself, becoming the best you, by you being in power and being in power. But Jesus says, come deny yourself. Live for others. What is the goal of life? Gain as much as we can, experience as much as we can, get as much pleasure, as much stuff, as much power, as much money. And that, that's lost, Jesus says. Be weary of that. Be leery of that. Several years ago, as we closed, Becky and I were on a cruise, and we've taken two cruises together in our marriage, and we went with the same couple on both cruises, Steve and Cindy. They're some of our best friends. And at the end of the cruise, we were downstairs. They had this formal area where you can have breakfast or you can just go to the, you know, the huge smorgasbord or whatever. So we, we did the sit-down breakfast and on our last morning, and we're sitting there, and there's another couple at our table, and Becky and her friend Cindy are sitting right next to them. And as we're pulling into the port of L.A., Becky says, I hate to see this cruise come to an end. And this other woman that's sitting right next to her that we don't know says, I cannot wait to get off this ship. And Becky and Cindy are just two of the most optimistic people on the planet, and so they have to investigate, and Cindy's a lawyer, and so she has to figure out why. Why is this woman saying this? So this lawyer, Cindy, puts her on the stand. Did you like the food? No, it was bland. What about Mexico? I hated Mexico. The room. We, we hated the room because the bed was so uncomfortable. Is there anything you liked about the cruise at all? Anything at all? Well, the last night, last night, we won bingo. <laughs> we won $5,000. <laughs> but we hated it. This was a horrible experience. Like, here are two things that just don't seem to go together, but I think they're a perfect picture of our culture. 
We live for pleasure and just pigging out and just doing, getting more experience, everything more and more and more. And, and, and we walk away from an experience where even at the end, you win $5,000, paying off the entire vacation, probably having some money left over. And you say, it was lame. <laughs> I was bored out of my mind. Friends, this week, would you reflect on the reality of why, why Jesus had to suffer? why he did it, why he had to, and the beauty of it. And then his invitation saying, find your life, not in the way your culture is telling you to, more, 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 you must be better, you must be more powerful, but find it in following after me, humbly following after me, loving me, serving me, ushering in my kingdom th through humility. What joy there is in simple obedience and following after Jesus, never perfectly, but faithfully following him, learning to die to ourselves, becoming more like his son. It says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. He loved me and he gave himself up for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We sing about the cross. We weep at the foot of the cross. We, we wear the cross around our neck. We envision the cross. And we're thankful. And I pray this week for my friends that we would reflect on the beauty of your love for us, demonstrated to us, your perfect justice and your perfect love found at the cross. And may that lead to a life of us living cross-centered lives not just in one area, a cross to bear in a difficult marriage or this or that, and they certainly are difficulties, but a life lived where we, we simply want to serve and follow you, whatever that may mean. May you make that real in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.